On this episode, I'm in conversation with Dr. Leslie Ann Smith, highlight two new resources from Healthcare Improvement Scotland and the Q community, and ponder a question on the psychology of change. Welcome to the QI Guy in Conversation with podcast. I'm your host and personal improvement advisor, Jonathan O'Reilly. Thank you for joining me as we have a conversation with people from the world of quality improvement, working in public services in the four nations of the UK. I hope you're intrigued, enlightened and inspired by the conversations we have each month and you can let me know what you think about the podcast at the Twitter handle at the QI underscore guy. Before we get to our conversation today with Leslie Ann Smith, I wanted to let you know about two new resources, one from Healthcare Improvement Scotland's Scottish Patient Safety Programme and the other from the Q community. The SPSP Essentials of Safe Care is a new resource published in March 2021 by HISS. It is an evidence-based change package containing the essential elements for safety in a format that can be used by all health and social care point-of-care teams. It covers person-centred care, safe communication, leadership and culture and safe processes with a focus on infection prevention and control. How relevant is that? It has a ton of useful templates, links and evidence to help you on your quality improvement journey. You can find out more by visiting the SPSP web pages, googling SPSP or you can get the links in our show notes. Next up is the Q Community's Creative Approaches to Problem Solving Toolkit. Q's toolkit of 25 tried and tested methods for creative collaboration and problem solving is helpful in almost every scenario. Again, you can search for this online through Google or you can get the links and more information in the show notes. Both resources are also linked to on our QI Guy Twitter account. And now for my conversation with Dr. Leslie Ann Smith. Leslie Ann is a Health Foundation and IHI Fellow and a retired Director of Quality at NHS Lanarkshire. Leslie Ann has had a storied career in the NHS, from junior doctor to senior posts in finance, clinical governance, before her move on to roles focused in building QI capacity capability nationally here in Scotland. And now time for my conversation with Leslie Ann. Welcome back, guys, and I am joined uh, by Dr. Leslie Ann Smith, and it's a huge privilege and honour for me. How are you, Leslie Ann? I'm good, Jonathan. How are you? I'm doing exceedingly well and uh, very thankful to hear your voice. Yeah, it's been a while, hasn't it? It has. It's been a couple of years. Um, 2018, 19? I can't remember exactly. Yes. Two years, um, two and a half years, in fact, since I um, retired. Early, I may add. <laughs> yes, early, early retirement. And it's, <laughs> it's sitting you well? It is, yes. Um, I, I'm enjoying life, um, although I keep very much in touch with uh, different people and um, on Twitter and other places as well. I certainly keep up to date with uh, all things QI. Fantastic. So being that you're retired, this might be, be a painful start for you, but to take you all the way back to the beginning again, to, to, to let our listeners understand 
how did you enter into the, the NHS? What was your entry point into to this wonderful world of healthcare? So I trained as a doctor, um, went to Aberdeen University, and I graduated in 1983. Um, I had always wanted to be a doctor as, for as long as I could remember, and... Um, the reality, though, was, for me, slightly different. Um, I I wanted to be a surgeon. That was the thing that I really enjoyed doing, sort of practical, hands-on um, bit of medicine. And at the time, in 1983, um, it was quite difficult to be a woman, um, a female surgeon, and also have, as I saw it, now, you know, people could um, disagree with me, and I'm sure they will, but as I saw it, quite difficult to balance that, wanting to be a good surgeon um, and also having a family life. And so uh, I decided, maybe wrongly, um, that if I wasn't going to be a surgeon, um, I wasn't going to stay in the NHS um, and I went back to university uh, and did a postgraduate diploma in accountancy um, because the thing that I was really good at at school was maths. And I thought, well, you know, numbers, accountancy, I'll try it out. And it was only a, a one year course. And I thought, well, if it's not going to um, work out, then it's, it's only a year. Um, but I enjoyed it. And I then went on and trained as a chartered accountant. But my heart was always in the NHS and my plan had always been to come back to the NHS and work in finance somehow. And so I did that and I um, had uh, several jobs um, through Murray Health Services and then in Highland um, and became the Assistant Director of Finance uh, in Highland. And that was in about 1996. Well, wow, that's that's quite a quite a story there to go from being the the doctor or the would-be surgeon to the 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 assistant director of finance yeah um my my plan had been um then to to become a director of finance and then a chief executive and and that was not unusual um at that time trusts had, had not long started and it was quite common um, at that time for chief executives to have a finance background. Um, and so that was my my ambition. But over the okay, four years that I did the assistant director of finance job, um, it, I found it became increasingly difficult um, to stick to my values of the NHS because at that time it seemed to me that it was all about finance and saving money and doing things with the least possible money and I was a rubbish assistant director of finance because if the <laughs> clinicians came to me saying you know they needed they needed more money or they needed investment for x y and z my natural tendency was to say well yes of course I completely understand uh, but so I so a bit of a, a, a kind of conflict there and um one day I went to the medical director uh, in Highland and said, look, 
you know, is there is there anything I could be doing? I, I'm I'm just feeling a bit um, stuck where I am, and it it doesn't really, um, as I say, chime with my values. And that was. 1999, 2000, and clinical governance had really just started. And uh, she said to me, um, well, we need a clinical risk strategy. Do you fancy a secondment for nine months to write a clinical risk strategy? And I said, I haven't a clue what you're talking about, but yes, I'll give it a go. <laughs> um, and and it, it kind of went from there. I never went back to finance. Um, I went from clinical risk manager to head of clinical governance and risk management in Highland. Um, and I did that for from 2000 to 2011. So I have to correct you. I think on the contrary, if you were listening, the purse strings um, in that way, you probably were a great assistant director <laughs> of finance and not a rubbish one. So you, you find yourself then kind of in this world of, of clinical governance, risk management, as you'd said, it was it was relatively new um, around about the kind of uh, late 1990s, early 2000s. When did you first experience quality improvement as a, as a kind of me methodology and when did you kind of realise the benefits that that had alongside the more traditional approaches of say, clinical audits and risk management? I guess, um, like a lot of people um, in Scotland, I first came across um, quality improvement um, as part of the Scottish Patient Safety Programme. And that was introduced in, I think, 2007 at first um, was uh, yeah. proposed and then it was formalised in early 2008. But it was 2007... Um, Scottish Patient Safety Programme was launched. Um, it wasn't an option for us in terms of we, it wasn't a choice of for us to take part, which you know was a good thing. Um, and as the head of clinical governance risk management in Highland, uh, I was the lead officer for the Scottish Patient Safety Programme, and um, that that really was my uh, introduction to quality improvement. We didn't know much about um, the theory at all, but a uh, you know there was there was lots of uh, assistance. We had the um, the collaborative model, which meant that we had learning sets, mm -hmm. learning sessions, yeah. um, and it, it was a bit like the see one, do one, teach one. We you know we went to a learning session, we learned a bit about it, and then we came back. To Highland and and started supporting um, and teaching others. Part part of my job was to put the infrastructure in place um, to allow that mm. to happen as well. Yeah, it, it did feel um, very new, and I think at the time I'd worked in in Glasgow, it felt very new and exciting. Mm. Um, SPSP and this idea of of quality improvement. Um, so you're also a uh, Health Foundation and a, and a healthcare, or sorry, an Institute for Healthcare Improvement fellow, and you undertook a, a, a year's fellowship in two thousand and ten. Mm -hmm. Why did that um, opportunity speak to you, and, and what did it make possible for you? Hey, I, you know, when I look back on my career, I'll, I, I, 
I always seem to be looking for new and different things to do. And this was, it was just a flyer um, came in one day um, into the office when you still used to get mail, really don't get mail very much now, but um, this flyer came in from the Health Foundation and the medical director um, at the time, it had, had gone to him and he had written on it uh, for Leslie Ann. And it had made its way through um, into my uh, mailbox. And this was, you know, apply for an opportunity to spend a year um, with IHI. And I, I don't think that he really thought through the, the consequences of having written for <laughs> Leslie Ann on it because I think it was just the timing. And I thought, well, that looks really interesting. And um, Alistair, my son, um, had just finished his fifth year at school and um, I spoke to Malcolm, my husband, and said, you know, what, what do you think about going and spending a year in America? And he said, well, you know, go for it. Um, and so I applied, not expecting, because, you know, this is a, a kind of national, so it was UK-wide, not really expecting um, a, anything a, to come of it. But really hopeful that that it would be an interesting opportunity because our experience of working with IHI um, had been amazing. And I thought, well, you know, an opportunity to go and learn from the experts would be just fantastic. In the end, I was uh, incredibly fortunate to be chosen um, as one of four people that year um, to go across and spend a year in the States. And uh, so Malcolm and Alistair and Jock the dog um, re relocated to America for a year and we didn't come back we we decided we were just going to go and take the American experience um, for a year and we did that and it was an amazing opportunity for all of us uh, not just for me um, uh, yeah it was it was an incredible opportunity and a learning opportunity for us all yeah, and I think I think that's a lesson for anybody listening. If you see opportunities come up through, and and they still do through the Health Foundation and others, um, you, you you never know what's going to happen, and it can be a wonderful journey. So it's interesting you should say that, Jonathan, because you know um, I was incredibly fortunate because as a fellow, you each get um, allocated a mentor for the year, and my mentor was Paul Batalden who wow. I got to spend um, time with every month, um, a day, just talking through all things quality improvement. And Paul is just, um, I mean, after my my husband, my father um, and my son is my most favourite man um, in on this earth because he's just, he's just amazing. Um, and we were having a chat one day because I'd been reading a book about... Um, it was Virginia Mason, uh, actually, and um, their lean journey had started just by chance, a conversation by two people on a plane um, in America. And so I had been talking to Paul and saying, you know, what is it about a lot of these things just seem to happen by chance? If you read books and and things, it is, it is chance. And Paul made me really notice and reflect and say you do need to keep your eyes and your ears open for any opportunity that comes along 
um, because you just never know where it's going to take you. Um, and, and, and that is, you know, it can be the smallest things that lead to the most incredible opportunities. Uh, absolutely, and, and high praise for, for Paul there. Um, so the, the next step of your career from, from NHS Highland was to NHS Education for, for Scotland. Mm -hmm. could, could you tell me about what intrigued you about that? Was it just another opportunity and, and see where it goes? Or was there, was there a specific um, objective for you personally around moving to NES? The year that I spent in... Um, at IHI in Cambridge, uh, really, um, I thought I was going to go over there and learn much more in depth about the tools and techniques for quality improvement. Actually, what I learnt was much more about the importance um, and the elements of whole system transformational change and um, about the culture of improvement and how you can build that um, capacity and capability for improvement and why that's so important. And so the opportunity at NES was effectively to do just that. It was another um, situation where we didn't have a capacity and capability building plan for quality improvement in Scotland. Um, and so I was given that a task and that opportunity to set out a a kind of strategy for how we might build that capability, which I think is really important because we'd had, um, you know, Scottish Patient Safety Programme and then the Acute Adult Programme and, and the, the, mm -hmm. the programmes were beginning to build um, throughout Scotland, but there was really a need to have that kind of broader, how do we build the capacity and the capability within Scotland to make that sustainable so it isn't just a, you know, a project. Yeah, because much of the capacity and capability efforts up, up until um, to, to that point had been done through ASPSP mm -hmm. and, and as you'd said, the, the kind of collaborative learning system. So you were learning at the same time as advancing a uh, a set of deliverables around improving improving care. So you described that really well there, and that led you to basically develop the Scottish um, Improvement Leaders Programme. I know there was a few programmes before that, but the, the Scottish Improvement Leader Programme, which is now in its seventh year. I know, I can't believe um, that. I, I, I think it's cohort it's cohort in the 30s they're, they're advertising for or they're just about to start um and and i had the um the good the good fortune uh, the privilege i don't i don't know i still reflect on it but but as you talk about opportunities to be on cohort one of that program where, where um, we we first met I mean, what did you hope that that would achieve when you set out? What was your kind of, you know, in your wildest dreams? Was it was it just what you described there, or was there something more you thought it would deliver for for now public services in Scotland, not just healthcare staff attending that training? I think part of the reason why um, I established um, Scottish Improvement Leaders Program was because I had this belief that we had, through SPSP, um, built some of the capability um, in Scotland to be able to 
run our own programmes. Uh, up until that point, we had been reliant on um, IHI to deliver improvement advisor uh, programmes, for example. And whilst that was hugely beneficial, it wasn't particularly sustainable um, if we were going to increase the pace and scale of improvement. And as you said, um, I think at that time we'd started including the early years collaborative had uh, mm -hmm. started being developed. So we we're moving into uh, education. And I think there was ambition throughout Scotland uh, to extend improvement beyond even health and education into broader public services. And so relying on um, IHI really wasn't uh, sustainable financially um, in part, but also um, I think the context is important and uh, we had, I think, some resistance um, as we were trying to roll out the idea of QI, that it was an American thing, it was a health thing, it was, you know, it was kind of very special. And, and I believe that we we had the capability within Scotland um, to build our own services and we were doing it in a Scottish context, which I think was really important. Oh, no, absolutely. And uh, I think about some of the... the the kind of colleagues, peers and friends who were on that first cohort with me and, and they were all more than capable of of delivering um, on that objective that you, you just um, described there. So you had developed the skill programme at Ness and you decided it was time for your next challenge and that took you to NHS Lanarkshire. Um, was that again opportunity? Was that maybe I need to be back in a, an operational environment? What, what drew you to Lanarkshire? So I, I, I think um, you know a lot of of quality improvement is about is about actually getting involved in the doing. Um, and and mm. this is absolutely no disrespect to people who work um, in national roles, um, but but QI is 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 less a kind of theoretical thing in my mind. It's much more a practical doing, um, and I was slightly slightly anxious that I would that I would lose that connection with you know, being in a national role would lose that connection with the people on the ground who we were teaching and supporting how to do quality improvement. And it would be a case of I would be, I, I wouldn't understand, back to the word context, I wouldn't understand their mm -hmm. context, that, that I would become too remote from that and it would become quite a kind of theoretical process. And for me, um, that was really important that I didn't lose sight of what it was actually like for the people on the ground. Like yourself, who was a, you know, as you say, the first cohort of skill, I, I, wanted to, I, I wanted to understand and experience your reality. And so the opportunity came to do that uh, in Lanarkshire. And so I, I, I kind of jumped at the chance. Yeah, and I think that there is no way to, to kind of speed up um, 
and, and experience greater learning than actually doing it. Um, and, and certainly being in somewhere like an NHS health board or a health and social care partnership gives you so much opportunity um, to, to mm. do that. So both your time in, in NHS uh, Highland and then also in NHS Larich, you, you developed um, kind of branded approaches to QI. So you had the Highland quality approach and you also then had the Lanarkshire quality approach, um, the legacy of which is, is still continuing. Uh, why do you think branding is, is so important in QI and, and what are the challenges that you think exist um, in terms of bringing together often disparate goals and functions together under a single approach for quality within an organisation? So I think the advantage of branding um, is to try and address exactly what you said there in terms of the difficulties that that you might have um, in trying to get people, different parts of the organisation to come together and understand quality and why it's important. It, it, when I started um, in Lanarkshire, I mean, even even once we had the Lanarkshire quality approach up and running, um, we would often get people saying that it's the quality directorate's approach. Um, mm. And and as you know, it's it's much more than that. And this was about this whole creating the conditions to allow improvements to quality to happen and it is less and, and this is this bit about the difference between improving quality and quality improvement and I know there you know again we could debate this and have a whole podcast on what is the, the difference between those two things but for me improving quality is is everybody's job in the organization about making the outcomes and the quality of care or services doesn't have to be health better is about improving quality and quality improvement tools and techniques and approaches are a way of doing that. But having a brand that that connects people to that that concept of improving quality emotionally, it's a kind of visual thing and it it, it, mm. it connects people emotionally. It's much easier, I think, to then have the conversation about what does this mean for me in my particular context? What does it mean for me um, in the planning department? What does it mean for me in the practice education department? What does it mean for me in information services? What's my contribution to the Lanarkshire quality approach? So it, it, it acts as a kind of conversation starter and also kind of pulling things together don't know if that makes sense yeah no i i think i mean that's absolutely my um my reflections on it is is that it it makes that that vision and what we're trying to achieve much easier to communicate it's, you're also you're almost creating a kind of uh, an organizational shorthand mm. for what you mean by quality rather than going into some long-winded description you could say the Lanarkshire quality approach and people already start to conjure an idea in their head or you can say the Highland mm. quality approach and you show them the triangle and, and you know on a single page they get an idea of what it is 
um, you're trying to achieve and how you're trying to achieve it in, a, in an organisation. So, yeah, I, I, as a, a kind of QI practitioner who was kind of, if you like, uh, living the the Larkshire quality approach, um, it certainly made my job easier. Yeah, I think I I, I was uh, I was clearing out um, my office the other day and I came across um, the snail Karen, I don't know if you remember but Karen <laughs> Karen um, our, yeah. uh, the um, facilitator had crocheted me a purple snail um, because the first iteration of the Lanarkshire quality approach I had just done um, on my laptop and the director of a uh, planning had said oh it just looks like a, a, the Lanarkshire quality snail it, it was a bit of fun but it got people talking it got people engaged um, it's I mean we, we we changed it over time and people might say well that's you know mm. it was it was a stupid thing they were being sarcastic about it maybe they were but it started the conversation and I think it engaged people a lot more and then it was also um, came across the t-shirts that we had remember the the t-shirt yep. and it was our first um, quality week um, celebration day and we had the t-shirts and on the back it said ask me about the LQA and it's exactly that mm -hmm. Um, thing isn't it it didn't have to go into a lot of detail it was just it was welcoming people in and saying to them ask us a bit more we'll be happy to have the conversation with you yeah giving people mm. that permission mm. to come up and mm -hmm. speak to you um when they perhaps perhaps wouldn't, wouldn't um yeah i've still i'm sure i've still got the polo shirt <laughs> the nice blue polo shirt somewhere <laughs> so as we wind down here leslie i'm thinking about um the, the future and kind of horizon scan and as you mentioned earlier you're still you still dip your toe mm -hmm. in, in the waters of QI what, what do you think the next big opportunity or, or challenge would be for, for QI practitioners going forward I mean I think uh, obviously the, uh, the, the biggest challenge I think I, I I haven't experienced um, having to work in the environment that you've been working in for the last year in terms of COVID and the pandemic and the impact um, mm -hmm. that that has, has had. Um, I mean, I'm, I, I follow people, I watch people, I've spoken to people who are working in that environment and, and I am um, in awe of what people have been doing and continuing to do throughout the last year. I think that there will be real opportunity um, for quality improvement um, practitioners and others moving forward to be part of that recovery element um, there's, yeah. you know, there's been so much focus, rightly, um, on in the last year on uh, managing the day-to-day -day impact of the pandemic. But I think that moving forward, there is going to be a real need to continue to do things differently. Clearly, lots of work um, and things are being done differently. There's real opportunity to use QI 
to embed those things that have worked really well, to learn from the things that have worked really well, and to embed that in the system. Absolutely. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think that that is really uh, important. I think the other thing for me um, is, I, I suppose, a challenge is about how to broaden out quality improvement, quality improvement practitioners. And, and I think, um, you know, over the years, the the capabilities, the the concepts, the, the the tools and the techniques that are being taught in relation to quality improvement have broadened out um, immensely. And mm -hmm. so I think one of the challenges is not to see QI as a very narrow thing, but to broaden it out and think about how do we use different tools and techniques, different approaches, depending on the scenario um, that we are having to deal with. So it's not just about very narrow tools and techniques or one way of doing something. It's about looking at the context that you're working in and using the right approach for that situation. Yeah, because of course, if all you have is a hammer, yes. everything begins yes. to look yes. like a nail. <laughs> and, and, you know, that whole thing about, and what we try to do with the Lanarkshire Quality Approach and, and about creating the conditions for improvement to flourish is about recognising that you do need all of the elements. You need the quality evidence, you need the quality assurance, you need that learning system, you need performance management um, around it. it these, these things aren't uh, different, they're not separate, they don't conflict with each other, they're all important components of what you're trying to do to improve the quality of outcomes. Excellent. So just one last thing, Leslie-Ann, uh, put you mm -hmm. on the spot. What would your top tip be for anyone who's either starting out or maybe just needing, needing a little bit of a refresh around quality improvement? My... My, my top tip would be to find somebody in your organisation who knows about quality improvement and go and talk to them. Um, and my second tip, if I'm allowed to, is, oh, is, yeah, yeah. is around don't be frightened of exploring the ideas that you've got to make things better. That, that very thing that we were talking about in terms of um, mm -hmm. giving people permission to ask questions or to have some ideas um, around how they can make things better. And it doesn't have to be a great, big, huge, massive project. It's something that will mm -hmm. make things better for either your patients, the people that you provide services to, your staff, or even yourself. And, and, and don't be frightened to just give it a go. Absolutely. And, and small successes mm. can have 
a big yeah. impact um, and, and not to be underestimated. Yeah. Well, Liz Leanne, thank you for taking your time to speak to us today. It's been really appreciated. And Thank you to Leslie Ann for a wonderful interview and for giving over time. I hope you found um, some useful nuggets there, um, whether it's about QI methodology and the approach, or indeed about Leslie and herself. Our first question on Twitter comes to us via the Twitter user at KedarPriya1, and he's used the hashtag AskQIGuy to pose the question. What is your opinion regarding incorporating psychology elements in QI methodology? Well, I suppose my answer to that would be it's of vital importance. One of the four elements of Deming's lens of profound knowledge is an understanding of psychology. And that's to help us understand the interactions between systems and people, how people learn, how people respond and relate to change, and what motivates people. We have to acknowledge that people's behaviours are complex in relation to change. Change can be frightening for some people. We have to be mindful that the change is a positive or represents a positive change for the majority of people we're working with. Being is easier than becoming and some people are wedded to that status quo. Thinking about the pace of the work and the impact that that has on people's behaviours, I would always advocate that you go slower, and if you think you're going too fast, then perhaps you have to slow down. On learning, how do people learn? And putting in place structure to make sure that you increase your knowledge as you go, and provide structure as well to guide people. A relentless focus is called continuous improvement for a reason, but we have to be continually doing this. This is not necessarily a stop and start, but, but a continuum of activity. We also have to look at small successes and understand that they can have a big impact and perhaps might not change the landscape completely, but we have to take time to recognise these. I hope that was helpful, Kedar. If you have a QI-related question, you would like debated or a different perspective on, you can ask me on Twitter at the QI underscore guy and use the hashtag as QI guy. Twitter is free guys, so there's no barrier to getting involved. Thank you for listening to this episode of the QI Guy in Conversation With. I hope you enjoyed it. Tell us what you think about the podcast. Leave a PDSA or, should I say, a review, wherever you find us. Please subscribe to the podcast wherever you get yours. And until next month, take care.